Okay, welcome everyone to Drisha's spring program and the second class of this session on Halachot of mental illness. This class will explore the question on whether or not someone suffering from anorexia is exempt from any obligation on their way to recovery. It is my pleasure once again to welcome Rav Yoni Rosenzweig to be with us today. Rav Rosenzweig is a community rabbi in Beit Shemesh, a Ramat Midrashat Lindenbaum, an author of several books, and we are very happy to have him here with us today. And with that, let me see if Rav Rosenzweig is here. Okay, hope everyone is uh, doing well and healthy. Um, and uh, I'd like to thank everyone who um, emailed me uh, from since last week. And um, I'm always, I always enjoy getting feedback. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, I also felt, um, I mean, I had spoken about how my course should go, you know, like uh, a few weeks back with some people at Risha. And I, I think after last week's uh, change my mind a little bit, uh, we're not going to read sources. I'm going to talk about sources. Uh, the sources have been sent to you. There, there were a lot uh, this week. Um, they're there only for those who would like to kind of like delve into them. I will reference the sources. Uh, but I will not read them. Uh, so that way, uh, anyone who wants to, after the shear, go a little bit more into it is more than welcome. Okay, without further ado, uh, let's go on um, to our topic today, which um, is about um, eating disorders. Uh, someone suffering from anorexia, exempt from any obligation on their way to recovery. I believe that's the title that I gave uh, to the class. And um, through the discussion of eating disorders, um, we will look at a very important halachic principle. Um, and actually, we're going to start with that principle. But in order to kind of like, once again, put it into context, as I did last week, um, just to explain, one of the things that we have to deal with in any field of halacha, but a lot of times, here uh, as well is statistics, meaning the idea of how many people out of a certain group uh, end up a certain way. How much of a chance is there that there'll be such and such functional consequences? Um, what are we, when we worry about things, how worried should we be about those things? All right, that's a question that you can ask in many fields but I feel that it is extremely glaring in this issue specifically uh, of mental health because we need biologicers many times for mental issues. Meaning when you look at, but you can see depression, for example, right? It's, it's, not, it's not easy for us to be able to understand uh, whether someone is or isn't ill or how ill is that person? How unwell are they? How bad is the disorder, right? We don't even know, how are we supposed to quantify it? When people talk about chas v'shalom, God forbid, let's say cancer, they can say uh, whether the cancer is aggressive or not, has it metastasized, how much, how much of it has spread, where has it spread to, you know, and you can look and you can see these things, you know, with different ways of imaging and this and that. And, of course, I'm not trying to say that cancer is not terrible. Of course, it's terrible. But with regards to mental health, uh, it's like a secret. It's like mysterious. We don't know for sure, you know? And whenever like a case moves from one therapist to the other, all they can rely on are the notes of the previous therapist 
but that doesn't necessarily always tell them exactly what they want or need to know. And they'll want to have their own impression, right? They'll say, oh, let me look at this guy. Let me talk to him a little bit. I want to see if I understand, you know, what's happening, where, the, where that person is coming from, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of thing. So my point is that, um, that it's more complicated, I would say, uh, when it comes to mental illness to decide in like a very, very clear way, oh, if we don't let this person do X, the result will be Y. Absolutely, 100%, yeah? Doctors will be more willing to say that with, with physical health. If we don't care for this person now, there'll be a deterioration and so and so will happen. While with mental health, it's a statistical probability, it's an issue of statistical probability. I'm not saying there aren't statistical probabilities also in physical health, once again, to be clear. I'm not claiming there aren't. I'm claiming that many of our um, halachic rulings depend many times in mental health about the consequences of the specific disorder. And for a doctor, a therapist, a dietitian, a social, uh, uh, um, social worker to try and predict um, what the consequences will be of a specific mental malady is a complicated issue, not a simple one. And so we rely on statistics. Then as a result of that, we come to the question of what is the halachic status of statistics? How much can we rely on statistics? What, do we, what are we looking for? What matters to us? And that is a very, very significant topic. One which I wrote an entire chapter about, about, uh, you know, on Word it came out 37 pages in Hebrew. Um, and uh, one which I sent you 23 pages full of sources about because that's how big the topic is. So we're not gonna do 23 pages of sources, but we are gonna talk about those sources. Okay, and we're gonna do it briefly. Um, so let me let me take you through those sources, okay? Um, and um, for those of you who have before, before you the sources, I'm not gonna read out of them to be clear, but I will tell you the numbers so that you can mark down for yourselves if you want what sources uh, talk about uh, what issues, okay? So let's, uh, let's begin, okay? We're talking a little bit about that. Um, our sources, um, our, so our discussion starts with a seeming disagreement between two Rishonim. One is name is Rabbeinu Yeruham, and the other one is called the Rosh, okay? Maybe you've heard of the Rosh. He's more famous than Rabbeinu Yeruham, but they're both important Rishonim. Um, Rabbeinu Yerucham seems to say very, very clearly that when we talk about pikuach nefesh, when we talk about something that's life-threatening, we're talking about someone who's in danger now, right now. We're not talking about someone who will be in danger if we don't help him, if we don't do something for him. Right now his situation is stable, but who knows if we don't help him now, if we don't do something for him, his situation might deteriorate and something will happen. We're not talking about that, says Rabbi Yerucham. That's not a case of Pikuach Nefesh. If he's fine now, even though he'll most definitely or with some degree of certainty deteriorate, that's not yet a situation that is considered life-threatening. That's the opinion of Rabbi Yerucham. 
But the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher, from the 14th century, says differently. The Rosh says that someone who is in who is not in danger now, but will deteriorate, is considered in danger now. In other words, we can stop him from deteriorating. We can prevent the deterioration into a status, into a state of of a person who's sick and is in danger. We can prevent that, says the Rosh. And the fact that Rabbeinu Yerucham and the Rosh disagree is not surprising because Rishonim disagree all the time. But what is interesting is that the Shulchan Aruch, the Posek that we all know, paskins both opinions. He brings down the opinion of Rabbeinu Yerucham in Hilchot Chavis, in Orachaim Shin Kafchet. And he brings down the opinion of Rabbeinu Yerucham in Hilchot Alachaz of Yom Kippur, Orachaim Tav Reish Yud Chet. So it is not surprising that there's a machloket. It is surprising that the Shulchan Aruch seems to bring both opinions. This leads the Rishonim, the, the, mostly the Achronim, sorry, the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch to try and understand who the halacha is like. And this entire discussion from Rabbeinu Yerucham and the Rosh through the Shulchan Aruch, through all the Achronim, ranges from sources one all the way through 24. Okay? So if you want to delve into this specific disagreement, you'll find it in sources one through 24. Okay? Uh, and that's for those of you who are keeping track and are, like I said, are interested in looking at that. Um, basically, there are three approaches to, um, to this issue, okay? Um, the first approach is that the Shulchan Aruch really means to paskin like the Rosh, okay? Um, that's one, that's one, one option. One option is to say that the Shulchan Aruch indeed rules leniently. Anyone who is in a life-threatening situation or could deteriorate unless we intervene into a life-threatening situation is at the moment considered in pikuach nefesh and therefore must, uh, we can do anything that we want for that individual, including uh, violating Torah prohibitions on Shabbat. Even though the Shulchan Aruch seems to say in Hilchot Shabbos, like Rabbeinu Yerucham, these opinions simply interpret a bit differently the statement in Hilchot Shabbos to fit with the statement in Hilchot Yom Kippur. So basically they say, halacha is like the Rosh. Someone who is in some sort of danger, no problem. Yeah, you can, even if he's not in danger right now, but he will be in danger, that person can, you can do whatever you need in order to save him, to help him, to do whatever you need for him, even if it's a violation uh, on a Torah level. That's option number one. Option number two is that the uh, rulings like the Rosh and Rabbeinu Yerucham complement each other, complement each other. They are not, um, they are not uh, contradictory, but rather they could be the same. Okay, how so? How could they be the same? We, how could they be, uh, um, sorry, I'm, I'm mixing up. Uh, they are, they are complementary. Um, they are not contradictory. Okay, they're not contradictory. They're complementary. They can be, uh, be learned together, and there is no contradiction. Why? How so? There are many different 
uh, distinctions that can be made. I will make one major distinction that uh, many of the Achronim make, which is the following. We have to distinguish between a person who is already considered to be, and there is a significant uh, worry that if he's not taken care of, uh, the disease or whatever it is, the malady uh, will get worse. And a person who right now is not in any threat of deterioration, but a deterioration is possible. In other words, someone who right now is suffering a deterioration of some sort, but he's not yet a he's not yet in danger. Since he's already in the throes of the deterioration, that is what the Rosh meant when he said he's considered but someone who right now is not a but under a certain circumstance something could happen to create a deterioration that person is not a and you cannot violate you know, Torah prohibitions uh, for that individual and that is the second with regards to this contradiction within the Shulchan Aruch okay so I sum up these two opinions, okay? One says basically halachas like the rush, that any danger of deterioration is enough. The other says, no, 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 no. We need to see a deterioration for us to be able to be lenient. Otherwise, there's nothing to talk about. There is a third option. And it is very interesting option. Um, and I, you may have heard of it. It's usually quoted in the name of Rabbi Israel Salanter uh, regarding the cholera outbreak in the 19th century. That uh, in Vilna, uh, when, the, when there was the cholera, uh, the doctors said that it was important to eat, drink, not to fast an entire day, and that that would keep the disease at bay. Famously, Rabbi Israel Salanter stood up in his shul and told people that this Yom Kippur, they're not fasting. And he, according to some, he even took like a cup of wine and he drank it. He made like, you know, made a bracha on it and he drank it. Or he took even like, I don't know, some mizonos and he made a, all kinds of stories about what exactly he did. But here's the thing. He wasn't even talking about someone who was sick. He was talking to healthy people. He was talking to perfectly healthy people. And he said, these individuals, even though they're healthy now, they may be susceptible to becoming sick. So we don't take any chances. We don't take any chances. We're going to make sure that everyone is healthy. And so we're going to preempt, take a preemptive strike, so to speak, in order to uh, keep the disease at bay. So that was the position of Rabbi Swaslander over there. That's definitely going one step further. Okay, so now we have three opinions. And we're going to work with these three opinions. So let me restate the three opinions just so that I can, uh, I'll restate them in, in order of, let's say from a, from a more lenient to a more, more stringent, okay? Just so that we're clear. The most lenient opinion that I just presented in the name of Rabbi Sral Salanter, for example, um, was that when there is a clear and present danger, even if you're totally healthy, uh, that's called pikuach nefesh, and you can violate even the fast of Yom Kippur in that situation, okay? And that's Rabbi Israel Salanter, uh, with, once again, with a clear and present danger, um, you know, in that situation. Okay, so that's case, that's option one. Option two 
even you don't not not uh, someone healthy, of course, is not an, in a case of pikuach nefesh, but someone who's sick and is in danger of deterioration if we don't do certain things for him is already considered uh, a cholish yesh sakana, someone who's in danger, <clears throat> and we should be wary and worried about such an individual and do what it takes to make sure he doesn't deteriorate in that direction. Option three, no, we have to wait for that person to become a cholesh or at least to have proof that he's deteriorating significantly in that direction. If we see proof that he's significantly deteriorating in that direction, then we can say that. Otherwise, there is no way to say that. There is no way to say that. Okay, those are the three options. I hope that they're clear. Um, and we're going to go over them now, but we're going to move on to part two. Okay, so that was that was about the Shulchan Aruch, how he paskins, three basic positions in the acronym regarding evaluating someone who is a chole sheyesh bosakana, the evaluation of someone as a chole sheyesh bosakana, how do we do so? And you see three different positions over here. The next point that ties into this is already going into the question of statistics, okay? Uh, and this goes from, uh, this next discussion, which I will discuss, we'll talk about, goes from source 25 uh, till about, what is it about source 30, um, is this next discussion, okay? And it has to do with a rule, which is called, Ein Holchin Befikuach Nefesh, I will type it into the chat in case you're interested in what I just said. Um, right, which uh, I'm also going to translate into English. Um, okay, we don't follow the majority in life-threatening cases. Meaning in the cases of pikuach nefesh, we take into account the minority as well. Usually we follow a majority, the majority rules, etc., etc. But the classic case that the Gemara is dealing with when it talks about this is a case of an avalanche, okay? Some rocks fell uh, and they buried certain individuals. Um, the case in the Gemara is one where there are nine non-Jews and one Jew. I know that that uh, is not a comfortable topic for today. I'm not going to talk about it, you know, why or if Jewish lives are more important than non-Jewish lives. Let's put that aside, okay? But for the sake of argument, in terms of this Gemara, um, the uh, moving of the rocks, okay, uh, within this Gemara only happens in the case where you're sure that there is a Jew, meaning violating Shabbat by removing the rocks will only be done if you're absolutely certain that there is uh, a Jewish life trapped under that under those rocks, okay? So the question is, what happens if there were nine non-Jews and one Jew uh, in this courtyard, rocks fell over, one of the people in the courtyard is trapped, we don't know who, uh, the majority, right, of the people living there are non-Jews, you know? So then the question is, do we remove the rocks for the doubt that it might be a Jew that is under there, okay? Um, do we do so or do we not do so? That is the discussion of the Gemara. That's the case that the Gemara is discussing. Once again, I'm not going into the question of Jews versus non-Jews. Obviously, it's a thorny issue. Um, and clearly, once again, I'm not going to even talk about it today. Obviously, you would save a non-Jewish life as much as you would save a Jewish life, and I'm not going into that. But the point is that there, the Gemara does discuss it. 
And the Gemara seems clear on the fact that generally we would. It doesn't matter what kind of a doubt you have, even if it's one versus nine, if there's only a 10% chance that there's a Jew under there, it doesn't matter. You don't follow the majority when it comes to issues of life-threatening cases of pikuach nefesh. So yes, you would remove the rocks on the off chance uh, that there is a Jew trapped under there. Okay. Once again, once again, there is a discussion over here that is had regarding this rule. Why? Why? Because to say that you don't follow the majority in cases of pikuach nefesh is a complicated thing. How, how much do you stretch that? Okay, one out of 10 Jew, one out of 10 is a Jew. What about one out of 100? What about one out of 1,000? What about one out of a million? Do you draw the line anywhere? When you say we don't follow the majority in cases of pikuach nefesh, I mean, I could flip that on you, right? What if you're, what if you're, what if you're taking, what if you uh, want to go uh, do a surgery, okay? And the doctor says, 99% the surgery is going to go fine. There's a 1% risk. Many people will take the surgery. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe you're not allowed to do the surgery. Maybe, just a 1% chance. <laughs> One second. 1%. You don't follow the majority in cases of life. You might put yourself, you're putting yourself under the knife. Could be dangerous. You know, you walk outside, you could be, you know, run over by a car. Oh, what are the chances? What are the chances? You don't follow the majority. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, saying that you don't follow the majority in case of people is all very nice. But we all understand that there's got to be, on the face of it, right? You would say there's got to be some sort of a limit, you know, where you would draw the line on this issue. So here, too, there's a very, very interesting disagreement um, amongst the uh, achronim. Um, and this, if you're looking at, just for your, for those who are still kind of like interested to look at the sources sometime, I'll just tell you that this discussion goes from uh, uh, source 31. Yeah, I charted this more or less from source 31. Um, almost to the end, basically, almost to source 62, uh, more or less. Uh, there's a lot to discuss here, but I, uh, we'll get to the last sources um, uh, later on. Um, and here, too, there are three options, and these three options correspond to the three options that were mentioned previously. And let me explain what I mean by that, okay? Option one that I mentioned previously, according to the order that I mentioned, from most lenient to most stringent, okay? Option one was that even healthy people, right? You know, we don't take any chances. And indeed, we do find in the acronym some who hold this way, also regarding the rule, that they're very, very wary, very, very worried, even le miuta de miuta, even for very, very uh, small percentages. They're very, very worried. Now, they do um, make some sort of stipulation because, as I said, if we say that we, we couldn't walk outside because maybe a car would run us over, right? You know, so obviously they have to make some sort of stipulation. The stipulation that they make is that the situation is one that is unusual. In other words, not routine living, but one that is not part of routine living. 
So like in the case of the cholera epidemic, yeah, or things of that sort, meaning something that comes that is outside the natural order, let's call it, um, that is outside the regular routine that we have, in those situations, if you encounter such a scenario, you can be worried even about the smallest, smallest uh, uh, speck of, of, um, of pikuach nefesh. So that is one option, right? And that, like I said, corresponds. So they take ein holchin b'fikuach nefesh, that rule, as literally as possible. Like mamish, you don't follow any majority. Okay, with regards to that, assuming that the case is outside the normal routine. Option two talks about a certain um, feeling, okay, that people have, all right, and it's it's more it's more it's interesting this this middle opinion which I'm going to focus on a little bit later. This middle opinion tries to capture what people feel is a dangerous situation, okay. So what I'm reminding you what it corresponds to, right? It corresponds to a situation where someone is feeling, where, where, what did we say before? Option two was someone who is not yet but he's in a, in a state where if it deteriorates, it becomes a sakana. So then it can be do things for him to make sure it doesn't deteriorate, right? So this person is like right before, he's like on the brink. He hasn't started deteriorating yet, but he's possibly on the brink. That's the situation. The equivalent of that, in terms of the rule, the equivalent of that would be that a person is worried that if he doesn't do something right now, he might be in danger. Let me give an example of that, the way that Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Oyerbach gives it. It's a, very, it's, a, it's a very nice example. So let me offer it to you by way of explanation. What happens if there's a vaccine? Okay, I know that this is kind of like apropos, but let's say there's a vaccine out there, all right, an inoculation that a person can get. And they tell him um, they're going to give this vaccine out on Shabbos and on Sunday and on Monday. Should a person go and get it on Shabbos? So, Shabbos says, depends. I mean, if I tell that person that they're giving it also on Sunday, is he going to rush to get on Shabbos? Meaning, does he feel like, oh, I got to get it right now, I got to get it right now? He won't rush necessarily to get it on Shabbos. Many times, people will say, tough, <laughs> I won't get it on Shabbos. I'll get it on Sunday. Yeah? I mean, I know that for Corona, everyone's worried. But, you know, so that's why it's a little bit, maybe a bit different, right? But let's say it was a different vaccine, okay? One that you get every year, let's say for the flu or something else. I think many people would say that, okay, I don't have to get it on Shabbat. I can get it on Sunday or I can get it on Monday. You know, if it wasn't for how deadly the corona has been and how, how much it's uh, upturned up, up our lives, then I think that you would agree that many people would say, tough, I don't have to go on Shabbos necessarily to get it. But let's say that I said something else to you. Let's say I said to you, hey, you can get it on Shabbos or you can get it a year from now. Shabbos is the only time. Then people would be very worried. They'd be like, oh, I have to get it, I have to get it. So in other words, what's Rosh Hashanah Arbach saying? Saying it's same case, but the availability is different. In a case where the availability is every day, it may very well be that a person won't feel like he has to get it on Shabbos, in which case it would be also 
prohibited to get it on Shabbos, prohibited to violate Shabbat for that purpose. It's not pikuach nefesh. And the proof that it's not pikuach nefesh is that you're willing to postpone it. Many people, if they could get it every day, they would postpone it. They would say, oh, today I have to go to work. Tomorrow I have to have something with the kid. I'll get it Thursday. It's all good. Yeah? Many people would do that. That shows how they feel, right, about this vaccine. But if the statement would be, look, you can get it on Shabbos or you can get it in a year from now, everybody would run to get it on top. What does that prove? It proves that with that sort of availability, they feel like this is pikuach nefesh now. Because with that sort of, of uh, gap, there's no way that I'm not getting this vaccine. Then, says Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Arabach, it would be okay to get it on Shabbat. Yes, it would be fine. It would be considered pikuach nefesh to go and get it on Shabbat. Absolutely, it would be. So then a person could go. Okay, so that shows what he's trying to say. What do people view as dangerous? That's the question over here. Okay, what do people view? I see someone asked what it makes receiving uh, a vaccine chilul Shabbat. I know I said I wouldn't answer questions uh, during, but I'll just say quickly because it's uh, you know uh, the the puncturing of the um, of the vein um, you know is is a problem is a part of chilul Shabbos. Um, so therefore, it could be um, and uh, drawing blood. Also, uh, sometimes I'm mean, not drawing blood with a vaccine, but I'm just saying puncturing the vein, the muscle, uh, going under the epidermis, uh, all these things could be chilo uh, shams. Uh, anyway, uh, but that's not the point uh, for now. The point is that also traveling for it or whatever. Um, the point is that that just goes to show you that this middle opinion, right, not the one that says that any doubt, but what kind of doubt, the kind of situation where people are generally worried. Yes. People are generally worried that this could be a question of pikuach nefesh. If they're generally worried that this is a case, a case of pikuach nefesh, that's the kind of thing that we would be bechal shabbos for. We would say ein holchin nefesh acharov. That's the kind of minority chance that we take into account. Meaning, yes, it's a minority chance, but it's a chance. It's a it's a it's a worry that everybody seems to have. So even though it's a small percentage, but it's a significant percentage. The last opinion, and with this we're going to end our um, halachic discussion, and we'll go on to the professional side of things. The last opinion is that of the Titzeliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Yudah Waldenberg, and others, who state that um, it has to be what's called chole lefanenu. I'm sure that uh, many people know this term, maybe not in the Hebrew, but I'm sure you've heard of this very, it's quite a famous responsa. Uh, by the uh, Nodabi Yehuda, Rabbi Landa, he was asked, I think it was the first uh, response ever written about an autopsy. Someone asked him about, about uh, doing an autopsy, and he basically said that you would not be able to do so. The doctors wanted to do an autopsy in violation of the, of the body, uh, which was Asr according to Halacha, but they wanted to do so in order to figure out what killed this individual so that they could, in future uh, cases, heal the other individuals who were suffering the same thing. Uh, the Noda Yehuda prohibited the action because he said, uh, we don't have a whole elephant. We don't have, you, say, you say there are other sick people maybe who have this issue. You don't know that. You don't see any in front of you. There are no cholim right here. There are no sick individuals right here with the same thing. If there was someone right here who had it, then you could do the autopsy. But there's not no one right now who has it. Therefore, you cannot do the autopsy. Of course, today with the global village and the kind of connections we have from hospital to hospital across the world, there's always another chole, and autopsies would always be 
allowed according to this very same logic, uh, because that usually if one person has it, uh, doing an autopsy to figure out how to cure that individual would definitely help someone on the other side of the world. So uh, once again, you could do an autopsy today, but the idea is clear that you would need um, you would need to uh, uh, have a chole. You would have to have a proper need right away, right away. So that fits with 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 the third opinion that we saw before, right? Third opinion that said uh, that we need someone to be a cholish right now, right now. So we can't just say, oh, there's a certain percentage. I want to see. I want to see the mi'ut, where we say, you don't follow the majority of the guards to pikuach nefesh. Where's this minority? Is it in front of me? Do I see this minority? Do I see this individual or these, this, these, these people that need, my, that need the help right now? If, uh, if the people are in front of me, like in the case of what I said with the one Jew and nine non-Jews, right? In the, uh, in the, in the courtyard. The Jew lives there. We know that the minority is in the vicinity. So there, it's not just like a pipe dream. It's not like, just like, oh, maybe there's, maybe there's a Jew under there. I mean, what, if we walk around, we see, you know, like a pile of rocks, we always wonder maybe there's a Jew under there? Obviously not. Only when there's a reason to think that there is something. So this third opinion says, we need a reason to think that there's, a, that there's something in order for us to be able to violate Shabbat. So these are, once again, Repositions, reopinions. Okay. One last point. If you're still following me, I hope you are. Um, and we will be transitioning to the professional side of things. And then um, I will talk about our case and then I'll answer some questions, okay, uh, that are in the chat or that were sent to uh, Evie if they were. Um, what can we translate, okay, what, first of all, what is the halacha between all these three? So obviously, it's not exactly for me to say, meaning uh, there are three options here. One is very lenient, one is very stringent, and one is in the middle. But usually when I see three opinions like that, you know, and I'm not, I didn't go into the names, okay, who said what, but there are significant names on the, in the middle position and on the leaning position. There are also significant names in the, in the stringent position, but I usually like to take middle positions as a kind of like um, an average, okay? So I would say the middle positions in this case should be taken as halacha. Um, can we convert that into something more than just a feeling? Because the middle position said that whatever feels dangerous. So the answer is that some individuals did try to give a psak about that, okay? The percentages <coughs> range, if you want numbers, from 0.7% to 10%. In other words, that if there is a 10% chance of pikuach nefesh, according to the more stringent, um, to, the, to the more stringent uh, um, rulings, sorry, more stringent um, evaluations, that's the one, a logic evaluation, or even less, a 0.7% chance, according to some, um, that would be enough to violate Shabbat. Someone who is in a, who has a, either a zero, there are four numbers given, okay? 0.7%, 2%, 5%, 10%, but the range is between 07 to 10% in the post game, okay? 
So once again, if someone is in a certain situation and there's a statistical chance of somewhere between 0.7% and 10% that they will be in a life-threatening situation, that's enough for us to consider that statistical probability problematic. And we can act according to that statistical probability. So I'm going to take the most stringent opinion that we saw here, 10%, okay? Meaning if it's less than 10%, I can't be sure that this, I should take this statistic into account. But if it's at least 10%, I should definitely take this statistic into account, okay? What do we do with this statistic? So let's take the case of anorexia. I was asked about anorexia nervosa, one of the first questions I got asked, whether someone with anorexia nervosa needs to fast on Yom Kippur. It's a famous question. I'm sure you've heard it before. Um, it's not unusual for people to ask this specific issue, about, about this specific issue. Um, I, uh, in trying to learn about this issue, okay, I went to um, five different doctors. Uh, I went to six doctors, but uh, one of them was not Jewish. The other five were Jewish, religious, you know, because sometimes people say, oh, you have to ask a religious doctor because they only are the only ones who really understand the importance of Yom Kippur, et cetera. So, oh, fine, okay. I went to five Jewish religious doctors as well, as well as one non-religious, and I asked them about uh, this issue. And they all said to me, in no uncertain terms, that someone with anorexia should not fast on Yom Kippur. Now, to be clear, I'm not just talking about people who are in physical life-threatening, like physic are physically threatened right now due to their lack of weight. I'm not just talking about people who are not under physical threat due to lack of weight, but are still not balanced in terms of their therapy, in terms of their head, in terms of where they're at, in terms of their life. I'm not just talking about those people. I'm even talking about individuals who have been well for years, two, three, five even, that for many of them, fasting on Yom Kippur can be a trigger to deteriorate into anorectic behavior. And this is well known, okay? This is very, very well known. Uh, anyone who works in the wards can tell you. And I've uh, spoken to many people, like I said, over the years to figure out, um, you know, whether or not this is, uh, this is true, whether or not this psak is correct. Many rabbanim have agreed with me. Um, and, and like I said, all the doctors that I spoke to. Now, what's the reason for this leniency? Yom Kippur, the fast in Yom Kippur is a Torah law. It is a very stringent Torah law. It is not to be trifled with. We don't give up the fast easily. But let me be clear, according to the statistics, the lower end, I'm talking about the lower statistics, are that someone with anorexia nervosa, 10% of those individuals suffering from anorexia will unfortunately die, either from starvation or from suicide. Those are the lower estimates. The higher estimates, 20%, 30%, it's absolutely horrifying to think about it. That means if it's 10%, it's one out of every 10 individuals. I'm talking about those who are getting care not those who are not getting care. 
And if it's the higher estimates, we're talking about almost a third of the individuals who are uh, suffering from this very, very deadly disorder. So anorexia nervosa is not a joke in, by any means. So when I talk about someone with anorexia and I say that they are exempt from Yom Kippur, I'm saying that because of the statistics. And as we saw, the statistics matter when they're certainly even according to the most stringent opinions. If it's a 10% statistic, then it, then it counts, then it matters halakhically. If it's 10% at the most, once again, that's the, those were the stringent ones. St. Paul said even 5% or 2% or 0.7%. Certainly if it's 10%, everyone will agree that there is reason and need to be lenient for these individuals. Now there's a lot to say um, in terms of whether they would be exempt for life. I'm not saying they would be exempt for life. I think it's dangerous to say that for them, not just in terms of the halacha, but for them. To say to someone that they can never fast Yom Kippur is to say that they'll be sick forever. And I would never say that to a person. I don't think it's true. And I don't think it's the right thing to do. So I would caution against saying that because some people have pressed me you know, over the years to say that, to say, oh, just come out and say that anyone with anorexia, you don't want to take any chances. That's true. I don't want to take any chances with people with anorexia. But you know what I also don't want to do? I also don't want to make them feel like they'll be sick for life. I also don't want to make them feel like they're, they'll never be, they'll never get over this thing. Like it's, it's with them forever. And it's so hard not to fast Yom Kippur. I'm sure people here know what I'm talking about. It's one of my hardest jobs as a rabbi is to convince people not to fast on Yom Kippur. Usually people are happy to get out of fasts, but not Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur people are begging to fast. You tell them they don't have to fast, they feel really bad. Well, I'm not going to fast. I fasted all my life. I'm not going to fast on Yom Kippur. I can't do that. You know, it's not possible, right? So, you know, therefore, um, to, to tell someone they're never going to fast on Yom Kippur is, is like to push them outside of, of the Jewish community, you know, and you don't want to make them feel that way. And, and it's important to realize that. So I think under some, some conditions they can fast, but, but I think those conditions need to be worked out with a therapist and with a clear understanding of where the person is and to understand you know, like where they're at uh, so that we're not triggering them to go back into uh, anorectic behavior, which can be very, very dangerous. You know, so never to say you'll never be able to fast, um, but yes, to say to a person, look, as I always tell people, the default position should be no fasting. Usually our default position is you fast. You don't want to fast, you need a head there. You need a leniency from a rabbi. Go ask your rabbi. With anorexic with behavior, I always say the opposite. You want to fast, get a heter, get a leniency from a rabbi to fast. The, the rule is you don't fast. If you want to fast, if you insist on fasting, go and get a rabbi to sign off on that. And the rabbi should speak to the therapist and should figure out what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that it's all on the up and up and it's all fine. And that should be, otherwise, no. Otherwise, no. Your default position should be, I'm not fasting. With, uh, with, an, with the, like I said, with a disorder that is so bad that it, mamish, the lower estimates, it takes one out of 10. Unbelievable, horrible and unbelievable. Uh, we cannot take any, any chances whatsoever in those situations. All right, I'm gonna stop uh, here, uh, the part where I just uh, monologue and I'm gonna go to the questions. I'm gonna first go to my chat. And then if, when I'm done with my chat, 
if Evie wants to uh, tell me what she got, then I'm happy to. I'll listen. Okay. Um, let's see. Solomon says, how do you decide between sources? That's complicated to answer. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I, uh, you know, every POSIC does it a little bit differently and it's uh, one case is not the same as another. So I explained in brief how I did it in this case. Uh, and like I said, it has to do with the names as well of the people who said the things that I mentioned, uh, but I can't go into that right now because of the time. But yes, it also has to do with the fact that I think that when there are two very, very opposing views, that a lot of times it's it's a good idea to take the average uh, position. Not always, not always. I'm not saying that's a rule. But uh, in this case, that's that's how I felt. Uh, it's like a whole shear you could give to some sack on how to pass him. So um, we're not going to do that right now. Uh, Esty writes, what about a situation where a stricter halachic lifestyle impacts someone's mental health? Are there leniencies allowed for OCD or PTSD or depression? where someone may be overwhelmed by rules and rigidity. Absolutely. There are so many cases, right? So, um, you know, I wanted to flesh out the principle of um, statistics in halacha and to see how that, imp how that impacts uh, a case of anorexia and to see how we can dispense like a, a general ruling in the name of statistics. That was my point for this year. But of course, there are so many other cases. I got an email from a woman uh, just the other day. It was, I think, on Friday, I think it was. Oh, it was Thursday. It was Thursday. I got an email. Um, very, very long. I copied the email. I put it into my uh, into a Word document. It came out 19 pages long. She had, it had taken her a week to write the entire email. It was all about OCD and going to mikveh. And I felt so bad for her because she was like, she was obviously suffering very, very much. You know, like, you know, because she had so many things she wanted to tell me and she didn't know what order to tell me and this and that. And it was like, really, I felt so bad, you know, for her. And it took me just like an hour to read the, the whole thing um, and then to answer. So, of course, we have to find leniencies for OCD. PTSD, absolutely. Absolutely. So many things for PTSD, especially when it's uh, sexual trauma and things like that. I deal with it a lot. Um, so there are definitely issues Depression, I think, is next time about depression a little bit. I think we'll talk about depression next time. Yes, yes, absolutely. There are so many things to talk about and a lot of things that need to be done. Um, Solomon writes again, are there no decision rules between uh, the sources? Not with these, not, not a clear cut decision. Every rabbi, like I said, uh, makes, is there any system according to the Torah to define how that opinion of the law should be established? Yes, but in each case, it's a little bit different and each rabbi will implement differently. So I can't say that there's a clear cut rule. I can't say to you, Solomon, it's like, oh yeah, like there's there's like a, clearly a way to do it. And this is the only way. Mm, it's more of an art than math, okay? When it comes to paskining, there's a lot more art that goes into it. It's not just mathematics of uh, figuring out number of sources, number of people, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, Cheryl writes the three main rabbinic sources. One was Reb Salanter and Rabbi Yerucham. Who was responsible for the middle opinion? Not exactly, that's not exactly how I, how I put it to be clear. Uh, Cheryl, I'll just uh, correct a little bit. Um, it was, I didn't actually mention all the names, it's not your fault, to be clear, that's not your fault. Um, the, the, uh, the opinions, um, Rabbi Yerucham I mentioned as a Rishon who disagreed with the Rosh. As a result of that, Shulchan Aruch Paskin both opinions. But Rabbi Salandra was the most lenient. Yes, that's correct. Uh, most stringent, most strict was the Tzitzel Yezer, for example, Rabbi Yezer Yudah Waldenberg was uh, the most strict. 
And the uh, middle position you could attribute to Rav Shlomo Zalman Auerbach, for example. Uh, he was a middle position. But there are other names, of course, and I'm just giving one of the names. Um, Lisa writes, Rabbi, thank you for this valuable information. What are your recommendations to share this with Rabbein and increase awareness of mental health in the Jewish community? Um, my recommendations are to share this with Rabbein. You know, yes, 100%. Unfortunately, I have many times uh, uh, found that, just lately, in fact, someone asked me about uh, a woman, a young, young girl, uh, learning in a midrash here in Israel, um, suffering also from anorexia. And I found out that a rabbi had told her to uh, fast, to break, to, to fast and to break the fast if she feels some sort of onset of the anorexia and then to do so, and then to break the fast, but to drink with what's called shiurim, meaning within amounts, which is, in my opinion, horrible because shiurim are just as bad for anorexia as uh, fasting. In other words, if you, if you understand anorexia as a, it's almost like an addiction. It's not, an, I don't want to say it's an addiction mamish, but it's almost like an addiction in the sense that it's like a high. In other words, when you fast, right, it's the control. It's the idea that you can control what you eat. So if you tell someone shurim, they're still controlling what they eat. It's that feeling of control that gets them to do it. And therefore, um, it's a real, like I said, it's a real problem to tell someone do shurim um, in that situation. So we definitely need to get the word out there. I think many, many individuals who, like, who definitely just don't know. You know, they don't know the uh, what they're saying. They don't mean badly. They mean well. You know, of course, <laughs> no other rabbis mean badly, but but it's it's um, it's a problem that people just don't know the stats, the statistics, and the fact that their answers um, are going to be maybe even hurtful uh, to some people uh, when they do those things, um, when they say those things. Um, okay, are you a, someone wrote to me privately, are you talking about all these sermon of Yom Kippur or just fasting? I was speaking specifically about fasting because, uh, you know, right, right, if you ask, you know, if you ask someone with, with anorexia, do you think you can fast, which we many times ask people who come to us with Shilas, we say, how do you feel? Do you feel okay? You think you can fast? If you ask someone with anorexia, they'll say, of course I can fast. They want to fast. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that—that's what they want to do. That's the whole thing. Yeah. So if you if you if you say to someone, you can't you can't trust them in a sense. I mean, it depends depends on the situation. But you know, like it's not just as easy as just asking them. You know, like oh, can you fast? You know, like they they want to fast. That's what they want to do. That's the whole thing. So I was talking specifically about fasting. Yes, they can't just break uh, Yom Kippur willy nilly uh, without any uh, other sort of uh, uh, reason to do so. And the last question that I have in my chat, do you think most Rabbanim are responsible and honest enough in answering mental or physical health shilas at this stage or not? Eliana asked me. Um, the answer is, um, you know, I feel bad to say no, but that, that I think really is the answer. Not because I don't trust Rabbanim. Like I said, Rabbanim are good people. They're good people. They, they care. Um, they, they, they want to help. And I think that they that they think that they know enough, you know. But my experience has shown me that that that's not true. That rabbanim, unfortunately, many times put their foot in their mouth, and they make a mistake with with the, the way that they paskin, and they don't mean badly, like I said, but they could trigger certain situations, you know, to uh, recur and certain kind of disorders to get worse. And it, it, it's a mess. It's a little bit of a mess. We need better training. 
that's one of my goals, you know, is to create an institute for halacha and mental health and to train rabbis, to train rabbis in the, in the area of mental health. I plan to do that after this book that I've written. Um, I'm already working in that direction. Um, maybe, uh, you know, maybe, uh, all right, see, I see Mishulam uh, wrote me a question here. Maybe Mishulam can help me make the institute, who knows? Um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, definitely a work in progress, um, but uh, absolutely, we, we definitely need to train people because no, I don't think people really do have enough knowledge yet you know, that they can really, um, that they can really um, paskin on these issues with any sort of authority. It's not their fault. Like I said, I don't wanna, I'm not saying anything bad. I'm not criticizing rabbis. They mean well, they try to help their congregants. I think they need more knowledge, that's all. Um, one second, Evie, sorry, I just, I got three more questions here. Um, do you feel that, I'm sorry. Do you feel that uh, Rabbein today try to do, try to be everything? that they themselves are not specialists in areas of mental health, yet still Paskin, this can be so dangerous. I agree, Susan, it's not their fault, like I said, um, but they do, they could get some basic training. Like I said, I hope to make a seminar like that. They could get some basic training, God willing. And Mishalom says, how does the phrase Chole Yodea et Atzmo fit into mental health? Lev Yodea Marat Nafsho, I think that's what you meant. You know, Lev Yodea Marat Nafsho, a person knows, you know, when he's absolutely. I think that that has a significant, uh, uh, you know, uh, impact for sure. And if a person knows that they're going to deteriorate, I think it has, that makes a world of difference. Uh, and I would trust that person. If a person says, I can feel it, I can feel it. You know, it's gonna be bad for me. I would say, trust that individual, absolutely. We've, we've, we've too long, I feel, we haven't trusted people, you know, about their mental health. In fact, we've, we've de demonized, we've not demonized, we've demeaned them. Uh, we've made them feel small. We've made them feel like they don't understand themselves, like they're not all there. They can't really control themselves, what they know, what they don't know about themselves. Chaval. You know, a person says, you know, about themselves, certain things. We should trust that that's, that that's so. All right, Evie. So I, uh, I do have a question in the chat, but before I do so, uh, with your permission, uh, Rav Yoni, uh, can I let uh, Devorah ask you a question, Devorah Steinmetz? I, I'll ask her to unmute. Okay, there you go. And then after that, I have another question. Devorah, go ahead. Thank you. Um, it's actually a, a double question about the application of these uh, sources and considerations to anorexia. Um, one had to do with the statistical model, right? When you when you talk about 10%, you're talking about 10% of a population. So if we don't eat, 10% of the population will die of cholera. But when you're looking at an individual, those statistics are actually not so relevant, right? The question is, where is this individual in terms of, I'll use the, the female gender here in terms of you know, her particular uh, status, in terms of the particular danger to her, in terms of where she is you know, on the spectrum of illness and on the road to recovery. So, so, so I'm, I'm sort of a little puzzled about the notion that you can sort of take a statistical analysis of a population and apply it uh, to, to something so individual. That's part A. And part B, and, and this sort of dovetails with what you just responded to, Mishalom, in, in your presentation, I felt that kind of the, the, the agency and personhood of the person suffering from anorexia was kind of elided. It was kind of the rabbi, the therapist. And it, it feels to me that when we're talking about mental health issues, um, that the, the agency and personhood of that person, not do you want to fast or do you think you can fast? That's the wrong question, right? But um, 
you know, for one young, again, woman, it could be a man, but for one person, uh, it could be that, you know, saying, look, it's us or for you to fast will help this person understand how serious this condition is. Um, but for another person saying you can't fast, uh, even though it may be that she's not in particular danger, might be to kind of undermine, a, 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 you know, a, a, where she is in her journey of recovery. So, so that struck me as a kind of a, a missing piece in, in your description of how we apply the halakha to these. Uh, to these situations, she could respond. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I I want to say, right, uh, and this and this actually connects also to last week's presentation, right? First of all, that um, I sometimes because of the time constraints, and I am not in, under any time constraints right now. To be clear, I'm happy to stay here till eleven thirty, but uh, it might it's eleven thirty by me. It's uh, what four thirty by you, but um, but uh, it's. Um, I sometimes, because of the because of the constraints, um, I can't always give over the entire thing uh, and everything that I feel about a certain topic, and I kind of like hint towards certain things. But to answer your specific questions, when I first started uh, writing my book on Allah and mental health, and I started asking questions, so I always said, and I think I, I don't think I said this last time, that every question I asked, I got the same answer to. Every question I ever asked any therapist about anything. I got the same answer too, which was every case is different. Every case is different. Every case is, is unique, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. hundred percent. And I'm not saying that's not true. Every case is different and every case is unique, you know, and therefore what you're saying here is absolutely true. Nevertheless, um, a DSM was written, meaning they were able to take a certain, you know, uh, a list of symptoms or list of criteria and create some sort of a definition for uh, this disorder or that disorder, and yes, to bunch of you know a bunch of people into that into that disorder to say this group all has similar A, B, and C. So obviously, when you come to Paskin for a specific individual, you need to know the history, you need to know where they are in the process, you need to know what's going on with them. Hundred percent, I, I completely agree with that. I'm not disagreeing. What I'm saying is that as a rule, right? That's why I said the individual should come ask a question whether they can fast, not the opposite. In other words, the rule should be careful. The rule for, for that population should be, be wary. You feel like you can fast. You feel like things are okay with you. You wanna be part of that? Come ask a Shaila. Uh, okay, 100%. It's not like, I'll, it's not like I'll, for sure won't, I'll for sure tell you not to fast, but you're in the kind of population that I'm, I'm scared about. So therefore, Maybe come, maybe things are great, you know, and, and we can fast. But nevertheless, we need to be just careful, um, you know, not to not to encourage, not to tell those the, that population that they're the same as everybody else, you know, because then I, I I'm afraid that uh, it will trigger deteriorations that uh, we'll be sorry for later on. So I think that answers both points. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, one more question. Uh, is this a good time for another question? Yeah, I'm, I'm free, I'm free. Okay, perfect. Uh, one more question from the uh, the chat. Um, so Hindi was saying that uh, there is a clear answer to uh, fasting and anorexia, but what about other halachot that stem from um, this disorder that are not food related? So for example, uh, someone's relationship to physical appearance and uh, fear of body image uh, at the mikvah, what sensitivities or healing tools can be put in place that uh, stem from um, halacha? What again for just for what for for which issues? 
Uh, so for uh, one's relationship with uh, physical appearance, fear of body image, so less related to the food and more related to uh, body image. Um, I mean, uh, in terms of this is, I, I'm not sure exactly, you know, in terms of what areas uh, we're talking about uh, with regards to body. I mean, body image, right, could be, um, could be several things, is all I'm saying. So I don't want to, and I certainly don't want to, uh, you know, go into obviously the therapy issue because I'm not a therapist and I don't have a degree, you know, so I'm not talking about, about that area. But in terms of halacha, um, I am aware that um, surrounding the issue of mikvah um, and uh, all that area, right, of checking and, and things like that, uh, there are individuals who, um, who basically uh, suffer from seeing their body, you know, and checking their body and analyzing and examining their body uh, every single month before they have to go uh, and travel in the mikveh. I, once again, I, I didn't know about this at all, of course, until women started asking me questions or telling me about their experiences. You know, that for a woman, for example, right, who suffers from anorexia, um, who has to go and stand before, I mean, also for herself to stand before a mirror and to see, as she put it, I'm, I'm using her words now, the woman who described this to me, you know, to see kind of like the, the scars of her anorexia imprinted on her body, you know, when she's like checking her body or to expose that to the mikvah lady when she goes in, right? That those, those are difficult experiences, like, you know, uh, for some people, um, you know, so that's, that's an example you know, of, of those things. Obviously, uh, people, you know, like I said, we need a lot of sensitivity. We need a lot of, uh, we need to make sure that uh, we understand who the people in front of us are, you know, in all these, um, in all these situations. And uh, the more sensitive we can be, the more knowledgeable we can be, uh, the better. You know, I, I, we can talk about a lot of different cases, but I think that's the, that's the rule. I hope that helps. Anyone who has questions, uh, as far as I'm concerned, can uh, feel free to unmute right now um, to ask questions. Do we have anyone who wants to verbally ask questions today? I do. Yeah. Oh, okay, perfect. Go ahead, Juliet. Hi, um, I'm just a little confused. You said you're, you know, uh, the middle road, you know, not the more moderate. But then you said um, you go by 10% instead of 5% when I think of 5% as like the middle number. Sorry, I'm just confusing different things, I'm sure. But no, no it's okay. Um, the, all the percentages were said by people who were talking about the middle road. Uh -huh. Okay. So they, they were all, but even, I didn't really say 10%. What I said was that even if we go by 10%, it would fit with anorexia. But actually, I'm not sure surely we have to be that stringent. We could say even 5% or 2%. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think that we actually have to go as stringent as 10% to say that it's pikoach okay. nefesh. Okay. And I think Amy, right? Yeah. Uh, today, there are a lot of Yoatzot Halakha who are trained in Halakha and women's issues in particular. Are you in conversation with them at all? Sure. Um, uh, first of all, uh, Yosot Halacha, as you know, come from uh, Nishma, 
and yeah. uh, I just I just gave two talks in Nishmat uh, the last two weeks. Um, I was there giving talks, and uh, also uh, some of the Yotzot, you know, I, I spoke to them as well. But yes, uh, I definitely they have they have a lot more experience than I do in certain in some of these areas, um, and they've uh, dealt with issues pertaining to OCD, for example, and PTSD, you know, uh, and mikvah and taharan, all these things, much more than I have, without a doubt, uh, you know, and uh, they're, they're at the forefront, you know, of those issues. So yes, absolutely, definitely aware, definitely in touch, definitely important, you know, so thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rosenzweig, for this interesting second class in this series. I'm looking forward to next week. And thank you to everyone who joined us today here on Zoom, on Dresha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our spring program tomorrow, Monday at 1 p.m. with the second class in the series, The Halachic Process, A, a Brief History. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes, or you can always watch live at www.drisha.org slash live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you today, Rabbi Rosenzweig. We love having you. And thanks everyone who attended. And we really hope to see you at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Thank you so much. <laughs>